right, everyone. Hello, everyone. We're finally at our exit. Grab a drink. Six, six. And grab your things. Not to open Unbuckle your window, that seatbelt. No matter what and remember, you see, try to be or nice to the locals. I really wouldn't want to be reading about you and next. That, please Have buckle a good up night. and let's get a move on to exit six six. The Little Maid at the Door by Mary Eleanor Wilkins Freeman Joseph Bailey and his wife Anne came riding down from Salem Village. They had started before from their home in Newbury the day before and had stayed overnight with their relative, Sergeant Thomas Putnam. In Salem Village, they were on their way to the election in Boston. The road wound along through the woods from Salem to Lynn it was some time since they had passed a house. May was nearly gone. The pinks and the blackberry vines were in flower. All the woods were full of indefinite and composite fragrance, made up of like the breasts of myriads of green plants and seen and unseen blossoms. Like a very bouquet of spring, the newly leaved trees cast shadows that were as much a part of the tender surprise of the spring as the new flowers, they flickered delicately before Joseph Bailey and his wife Anne on the grassy ridges of the road. But they did not remark them. Their own fancies cast gigantic projections which eclipsed the sweet show of the spring and almost their own personalities. That year the leaves came out and the flowers bloomed in vain for the people in and about Salem. There was an epidemic of disease of the mind which defended and blinded to all save in its pain. Anne Bailey on the pillin and snuggled close against her husband's back. Her fearful eyes peered at the road around her shoulder. She was a young and handsome woman. She had on her best mantle of sad colored silk and a fine black hood with a top knot. But she did not think of that. Joseph, what is that in the road before us? She whispered timorously. He pulled up the horse with a great jerk. Where? He whispered back. There, there, at the right, just beyond the laurel thicket. Tis somewhat black, and it moves. There, there, oh, Joseph! Joseph Bailey sat stiff and straight in his saddle. Like a soldier, his face was pale and stern. His eyes fell of horror and defiance. See you it? Anne whispered again. There, now it moves. What is it? I see it, said Joseph in a loud and bold voice. And whatever it be, I will yield not to it, and neither will you, good wife. Anne reached around and caught the reins. Let us go back, she moaned faintly. Oh, Joseph, let us not pass it. My spirit faints within me. I see it is back among the laurel blooms. Tis the black beast they tell of. Let us turn back, Joseph, let us turn back. Be still, woman, returned her husband, jerking the reins from her hand. What think ye would profit us to turn back to the Salem village? I trow if there be one black beast here, there is a full herd of them there. There is not left out to ride past it as best we may. Sit fast and listen, you not to it, whatever it promise you. Joseph looked down the road towards the laurel bushes, his muscles now tense as a bow, and hid her face on his shoulder. Suddenly he shouted with a great voice like a herald, Away with ye, ye cursed beast, away with ye. We are not of your kind. We are gospel folk. We have not to do with you or your master. Away with ye. The horse leaped forward. There was a great cracking among the laurel bushes at the right. A glossy black back and some white horns heaved over the thorn. 
then some black flanks plunged heavily out of sight. Oh, shrieked Anne, has it gone? Good man, has it gone? The Lord hath delivered us from the snare of the enemy, answered Joseph solemnly. What looked it like, Joseph? What looked it like? Like no beast that was saved in the ark. Had it fiery eyes? asked Anne, trembling. "'Tis well you did not see them. Ride fast, oh, ride fast,' Anne pleaded, clutching hard at her husband's cloak. It might follow on our track. The horse went down the road at a quick trot, and kept, and kept peering back and starting at every sound in the woods. "'Do you mind the tale Samuel Endicott told last night?' she said, shuddering. How on his voyage to Barbados he, sitting on the windlass on a bright moonshining night, was shook violently and saw the appearance of that with Goodberry Witch with a white cap and a white neckcloth on her. It was a dreadful tale. It was not to the sight of Mercy Lewis and Sergeant Thomas Putin's daughter Anne, when they were set upon and night choked to death by Goody Protector. Know you that within half a mile we must pass the Protector house? Anne gave a shuddering sigh. I would, I were home again, she moaned. They said twas full of evil things, and that black man himself kept tavern there since Goodman Protector and his wife were in jail. Did you mind what Goodwife Putnam said of the black head like a hog's? The good man Purley saw the keeping room window as he passed, and the rumbling noises, and the yellow birds that flow around the chimney, and twittered in a paslum tune. Oh, Joseph, there's a yellow bird now in the birch tree, see? See? They had come into a space where the woods were thinner. Joseph urged his horse forward. We will not slack our pace for any black beasts nor any yellow birds, he cried in a valiant voice. There was a passing gleam of little yellow wings above the birch tree. He has flown away, said Anne. Tis best to front them as you do, good man, but I have not the courage. They looked like a common yellow bird. His wings shone like gold. Think you it has gone forward to the protector house? It matters not. So it but fly up before us, said Joseph Bailey. He was somewhat older than Anne, fair-haired and fair-bearded, with blue eyes set so deeply under heavy brows that they looked black. His face was at once stern and nervous, showing not only the spirit of the warfare against his foes, but the elements of strife within himself. They rode on, and the woods grew thicker, and the horse's hoofs made only a faint liquid pan on the mossy road. Suddenly he stopped and whined. Anne clutched her husband's arm. They sat motionless, listening. The horse whined again. Suddenly Joseph started violently and stared into the woods on the left, and Anne also. A long defile of dark evergreens stretched up the hill, with mysterious depths of blue-black shadows between them. The air had an earthy dampness. Joseph shook the reins fiercely over the horse's back and shouted to him in a loud voice. Did you see it? gasped Anne, when they had come into a lighter place. Was it not a black man? Fear not, we have outridden him, said her husband, setting his thin, intense face proudly ahead. I would. We were safe home in Newbury, Anne moaned. I would. We had never set out. I think you not, Dr. Martha, will ride back from Boston with us to keep the witches off? I will bide there forever if he will not. I will never come this dreadful road again, else. What is that? Oh, what is that? 
"'Tis a voice coming out of the woods like a great roar, Joseph. "'What is that? "'That was a black cat run across the road into the bushes. "'Twas a black cat, Joseph. Let's turn back. "'No, the black man is behind us, and the beast. "'What shall we do? What shall we do? "'Oh, oh, I begin to twitch like Anne and Mercy last night. "'My feet move, and I cannot stop them.' Now there is a pin thrust in my arm. I am pinched. There are fingers at my throat, Joseph. Joseph! Go to prayer, sweetheart, shouted Joseph. Go to prayer, be not afraid, till drive them away, away with ye. Goody Bradbury, away, goody protector. Go to the prayer, go to the prayer. Joseph bent low in the saddle and lashed at the horse, which sprang forward with a mighty bound. The green branches rushed in their faces. Joseph prayed in a loud voice, Anne clung to him convulsively, panting for breath. Suddenly they came out into the woods in a cleared space. The protector house, the protector house, Anne shrieked. Mercy Lewis said twas full of devils, what shall we do? She hid her face on her husband's shoulder, sobbing and praying. The protector house stood at the left of the road. There were some peach trees in front of it, and their blossoms showed in a pink spray against the gray unpainted walls. On one side of the house was the great barn, with its doors open wide on the other side, a deep plunging field with the plow sticking in a furrow. John Protector had been arrested and thrown into jail for witchcraft in April, before his spring planting was done. Joseph Bailey reined in his horse opposite the Protector house, and he whispered, and his whisper was full of horror. What is it? She returned wildly. Anne. Goodman Protector looks forth from the chamber window. Goody Protector stands outside by the wall, and they are both in jail in Boston. Joseph's whole frame shook in a strange, rigid fashion, as if his joints were locked. Look, Anne, he whispered. I cannot. Look. Anne turned her head. Why? she said, and her voice was quite natural and sweet. It even had a tone of glad relief in it. I see not but a little maid in the door. See you not Goodman protector in the window? Nay, said Anne, smiling. I see not but the little maid in the door. She is in a blue petticoat, and she has a yellow head, but her hair, little cheeks. But her little cheeks are pale, I trow. See you not Goodwife protector in the yard by the well? asked Joseph. Nay, Goodman, I see not but the little maid in the door. She has a fair face. But now she falls, a-weeping. Oh, I fear, Tess, she might be alone in the house. I tell you, Goodman Protector and Goodwife Protector both there, returned Joseph. Think you I see not with my own eyes? Goodman Protector has on a red cap, and Goodwife Protector holds a spindle. He urged on the horse with a sudden cry. Now the prayers do stick in my throat, he groaned. I would we were out of this devil's nest. Joseph, implored Anne. Prissy, wait a minute, the little maid is calling mother after me. Saw you not how she favored our little Susan who died? Hear her. There was not but the little maid, Joseph, I pray you stop. Nay, I'll ride till the nag drops, said Joseph Bailey with a lash. This last be too much, I tell you they they are, and they are also in jail. Tis hellish work. Anne said no more for a little space. A curve in the road hid the protector house from sight. Suddenly she raised a great cry. Oh, she screamed, tis gone, tis gone from my foot. Joseph stopped. What is gone? My shoe. But now I missed it from my foot. 
I must all and go back for it. Joseph started the house again and caught at the reins. Stop, Goodman, she cried imperatively. I tell you, I must have my shoe. And I tell you, I'll stop for no shoe in this place, were it made of gold. Goodman, you know not what shoe tis. Tis one of my fine shoes in which I have never taken steps. They have the crimson silk lacings. I have even carried them in my hand onto the meeting house on a Sabbath, wearing my old ones and only put them on at the door. Think you I lose that shoe? Stop the nag. But Joseph kept on grimly. Think you I will go barefoot or with one shoe into Boston? said Anne. Know that these shoes, which were a present from my mother, cost bravely. I trow you will needs loosen your purse strings well before we pass the first shop in Boston. Well, go on, and you will then tis but a matter of my slipping down from the pillin and run back a few yards. Joseph Bailey turned his horse about, but Anne remonstrated. Nay, she said, I want not to go thus. I am tired of the saddle. I would like to feel my feet for a space. Her husband looked around at her with a wonder and suspicion. Dark thoughts came into his mind. She laughed. Nay, said she, make no such face at me. I go not back to meet any black man, nor any sign book. I go for my fine shoe with the crimson lacing. Tis but a moment since you were afraid, said Joseph. Have you no fear now? His blue eyes looked sharply into hers. She looked back to him soberly and innocently. In truth, I feel no such fear as I did, she answered. If I mistake not, your bold front and your prayers drove away the evil ones. I will say Paul's as I go, and I trow not will harm me. Anne slipped lightly down from the pillin and pulled off her one remaining shoe and her stockings. They were her fine-worked silk ones, and she could not walk in them over the rough road. Then she set forth very slowly peering here and there into undergrowth besides the road until she passed the curve and the reach of her husband's eyes. Then she gathered up her crimson taffeta petticoat and ran like a deer with long graceful leaps, looking neither to the left nor right, straight back to the protector house. In the door of the house stood a tiny girl with a soft shock of yellow hair. She wore a little straight blue gown and her baby fruit were bare curling over the sunny doorstep. When she saw Anne coming, she started as if to run, then she stood still, her eyes soft and weary, her mouth quivering. Anne Bailey ran up quickly and threw her arms around her, kneeling down on the step. What is your name, little maid? She said in a loving, agitated voice. Abigail Protector, replied the little maid, shyly, in her sweet childish trouble when she tried to free herself, but Anne held her fast. Nay, be not afraid, sweet, she said. I love you. I once had a little maid like you for my own. Tell me, dear heart, are you all alone in this house? Then the child fell to crying again and clung around Anne's neck. Is there anybody in the house, sweet? Anne whispered, fondling her and pressing the wet baby cheek to her own. The constables came and took them, sobbed the little girl. They put my poppet down the well, and they pulled mother and Sarah down the road. They took father before that, and Mary Warren did gibe and point. The constables pulled Benjamin away too. I want my mother. Your mother shall come again, said Anne, 
Take comfort, dear little heart. They cannot have the will to keep her long away. There, there, I tell you she shall come. You watch in the door, and you will see her come down the road. She smoothed back the little maid's yellow hair and wiped the tears from her face with the corner of her beautifully embroidered neckerchief. Then she saw that the face was all grimy with tears and dust, and she went over to the well, which was near the door, and drew a bucket of water swiftly with her strong young arms. When she wet the corner of the neckerchief and scrubbed the little maid's face, biting her eyes shut, then she kissed her over and over. Now you are sweet and clean, said she. Dear little heart, I have some sugar cookies in my bag for you, and then I must be gone. The little maid looked at her eagerly. Her cheeks were waxen, and the blue veins showed in her full childish forehead. Anne pulled some little cakes out of a red velvet satchel she wore at her waist, and Abigail reached out for one with a hungry cry. The tears sprang to Anne's eyes. She put the rest of the cakes in a little pile on the doorstone and watched the child eat. Then she gathered her up in her arms. Goodbye, sweetheart, she said, kissing the soft, trembling mouth and the sweet hollow under the chin and the clinging hands. Before long, I shall come this way again, and do you stand in the door when I go past? She put her down and hastened away, but little Abigail ran after her. Anne stopped and knelt and fondled her again. Go back, dearie, she pleaded. Go back and eat the sugar cookies. But this beautifully kind vision in the crimson taffeta with the rosy cheeks and sweet black eyes looking out from the French hood with the gleam of gold and delicate embroidery between the silken folds of a mantilla with the way like her mother's was more to little deserted Abigail's protector than the sugar cakes. Although she was sorely hungry for them, she stood aloof with pitiful, determined eyes until Anne's back was turned. Then, as she followed, Anne looked around and saw her and caught her up again. My dear heart, my dear heart, she said. She was half sobbing. Now go, you must go back, else I fear harm will come to you. My good man is waiting for me yonder, and I know what he will do or say. Nay, you must go back. I would, I would keep you, my little Abigail, but you must go back. Anne Bailey put the little maid down and gave her a gentle push. Go back. She said, smiling, with her eyes full of tears, go back and eat the sugar cakes. Then she sped on swiftly. As she neared the curve in the road, she thrust a band in her pocket and drew forth a dainty shoe with dangling laces of crimson silk. She glanced around with a smile and a backward wave of her hand. The glowing crimson of her petticoat showed for a minute through the green mist of the undergrowth. Then she disappeared. The little maid Abigail stood still in the road, gazing after her, her soft pink mouth open, her hands clutching at her blue petticoat, as if she would thrust hold herself back from following. She heard the tramp of a horse's feet beyond the curve, then it died away. She turned about and went back to the house, with the tears rolling over her cheeks, but she did not sob loud, as she would have done had her mother been near to hear. A pitiful conviction of the hopelessness of all the appeals of grief was stealing over her childish mind. She had been alone in the house three nights and two days, ever since her sister Sarah and her brother Benjamin had been arrested for witchcraft and carried to jail. 
Long before that, her parents, John and Elizabeth Protector, had disappeared down the Boston Road in charge of the constables. None of the family was spared save the little girl Abigail, who was deemed too young and insignificant to have the dealings with Satan, and was therefore not thrown into prison, but was left alone in the desolate protector house in the midst of the woods, said to be full of evil spirits and witches, to die of fright or starvation as she might. There was but little mercy shown the families of those accused of witchcraft. Let some of Goody Protector's familiars minister unto the brat, one of the constables had said with a stern laugh, when Abigail had followed, waiting after her brother and sister on the day of their arrest. Yeah, said another, she can send her yellow bird or her black hog to keep her company. I wot her tears will be soon dried. Then the shoutly trampling of the horses had borne out of the sight and bearing the mocking faces of the constables. Sarah's fair agonizing one turned backward towards her little deserted sister, and Benjamin raised a brave, youthful clamor of indignation. Let us loose, Abigail heard him shout. Let us loose, I tell you. Ye are fools, rather than we are witches. Ye are fools and murderers. Let us loose, I tell ye. Abigail waited along thinking her brother's words would prevail, but neither he nor Sarah returned, and the sounds all died away, and she went back to the house, sobbing. The damp spring night was settling down in a palpable mist, and the woods seemed full of voices. The little maid had heard enough of the terrible talk of the day to fill her innocent head with the vague superstitious horror. She threw her apron over her head and fled blindly through the woods, and now and then she fell down and bruised herself, and rose up laminating sorely with nobody to hear her. As soon as she was in the house, she shut the doors and bared them with the great bars that had been made as protection against Indians, and now might wax useless against worse than savages according to the belief of the colony. All night long the little maid shrieked and sobbed, and called on her father, and her mother, and her sister, and her brother. Men faring in the road betwixt Boston and Salem village heard her with horror, and fled past with palsum and prayer, their blood cold in their veins. They related the next day to the raging terror-sickened people how at midnight the accursed protector house was full of flitting internal lights and howling with devilish spirits and added a death-dealing tale of some godly woman of the village who outrode their horses on a broomstick and disappearing in the protector house. The next day, the little maid unbarred the door and stood there, watching up and down the road for her mother or some other to come, but they came not. Although she watched all day, that night she did not sob and call out. She had become afraid of her own voice and discovered that it had no effect to bring her help. Then, too, early in the night, she heard noises about the house which frightened her, and made her think that the pre-chance, the dreadful black beast of which she had heard them discourse, was abroad. The next morning, she found that the two horses and the cow and calf were gone from the barn. Also, that was there left scarce anything for her to eat in the house. There had been some loaves of bread, some boiled meat, and some cakes. Now they were all gone and also all the meal from the chest and potatoes and pork from the cellar, 
but for the last, she did not care. Since she was not old enough to make a fire and cook, she had left for food only a little cold porridge and a blue bowl, and that she ate up at once and had no more, and a little buttermilk in a crock, which, she had being not over fond of it, served her longer, but that was all she had for a day and a night, until good wife Anne Bailey gave her the sugar cookies. These she ate up at once on her return to the house. Then again she stood watching in the door, but nothing passed along the road, save a partridge or a squirrel. It was accounted a bold thing for any solitary traveler to come this way, save a witch, and she, it was supposed, might find many comrades in the woods besides the road in the protector house, which was held to be a sort of a devil's tavern, but now no witch came, nor any of her uncanny friends, unless indeed the squirrel and the patronage were familiar demons in disguise. Nothing was too harmless and simple to escape that amputation of the devil's mask. Abigail took her little pewter porringer from the cupboard and got herself a drink of water from the bucketful that goodwife Bailey had drawn. Then she stood on a stone and peered into the well, leaning over the curb. Her puppet was in there. Her dear rag doll that Sarah had made for her and had dressed her in a beautiful silver brocade made from a piece of wedding gown that was bought from England. One of the constables had caught sight of little Abigail's protector's puppet and being straightfully filled with suspicion that it was an image where a good protector afflicted her victims by proxy had seized it and thrown it into the well. The other constables had children from him for such rashness, saying it should have been carried to Boston and produced as evidence at the trial. And little Abigail had shrieked out in panic for her puppet. She could see nothing of it now, and she went back to her watching place in the door. In the afternoon, she felt sorely hunger again and searched through the house for food. When she went out into the sunny fields behind the house and found some honeysuckles on the rock, she sucked the honey greedily from their horns. On her return to the house, she found a corn cob, which she snatched up and folded in her apron and began tending. She sat down in the doorway in her little chair, which she dragged out of the keeping room and hugged the poor poppet close and cooned it. Be not afraid, she said. I'll let not let the black beast harm you. I promise you, I will not. That night, she formed a new plan for her solace and protection in the lonely darkness. All the garments of her lost parents and sister and brother that she could find, and she had gathered together and formed in a circle to the keeping room floor. Then she crept inside with her corn cob puppet and lay there, hugging it all night. The next day, she watched again in the door, but now she was weak and faint, and her little legs trembled so under her that she could not stand to watch, but sat in her small, straight back chair holding her poppet and peering forth wistfully. In the course of the day, she made shift to creep out into the fields again and lying flat on the sun-heated rocks, she sucked some more honey drops from the honeysuckles. She found, too, on the edge of the woods, some young wintergreen leaves. She even pulled some blue violets and ate them. But the delicate, sweet, and aromatic fare in the spring larder of nature was poor nourishment for a human baby. Poor little Abigail Protector could scarcely creep home, still clinging fast to her poppet, scarcely lift her into her chair in the door, 
scarcely crawl into her fairy ring of her loved one's belongings at night. She rolled herself tightly in an old cloak of her father's, and it was a sweet and harmless outcome of the dreadful superstition of the day, grafted on an innocent child brain that it seemed to partake of the bodily presence of her father and protect her. All night long she lay there, her mother cooked good meat and broth and sweet cakes, and she ate her fill of them, but in the morning she was too weak to turn her little body over. She could not get to her watching place in the door that made no difference to her, for she did not fairly know that she was not there. It seemed to her that she sat in her little chair, looking up the road and down the road. She saw the green branches weaving together and hiding the sky to the northward and southward. She saw the flushes of white and rose in the flowering undergrowth. She saw the people coming and going. There were her father and mother, now coming with store of food and presents for her, now following the constables out of sight. There was that fine pageant passing, and she had seen it pass once before, of the two magistrates, their worshipful masters John Harthorne and Jonathan Corwin, with the marshal, constables, and aides, splendid and awe-inspiring, all their trappings of the office to examine the accused in Salem Meeting House. There were the ministers Paris and Noyes coming, with severe malignant faces, to question her mother as to whether she had afflicted Mary Warren, their former maid servant, who was now bewitched. There went Benjamin clamming out boldly at his captors. There came Sarah with the poppet, which she had drawn out of the well, shaking the water from its silver brocade. All this little maid Abigail Protector saw through her half-delirious fancy as she lay weakly on the keeping room floor, but she saw not the reality of her sister Sarah coming back four o'clock in the afternoon. Sarah Protector, tall and slender, in her limp, bed-raggled dress, with her fair, severe face set in a circle of a red shawl, which she had pinned under her chin, came resolutely down the road from Boston, driving a black cow before her with a great green branch. She was nearly fainting with weariness, but she set her dusty shoes down swiftly among the road weeds, and her face was not unyielding as an Indian's. When she came in sight of the protector house, she stopped a second. Abigail? She called. Abigail! There was no answer. She went on more swiftly than before. When she reached the house, she called again. Abigail! But did not wait, except while she tied the black cow by a rope, which was around her neck, to a peach tree. Then she ran in and found the little maid, her sister, Abigail, on the floor in the keeping room. She got down on her knees beside her, and Abigail smiled up in her face waveringly. She still thought herself in the door, and that she had just seen her sister come down the road. Abigail, what have they done to you? Sarah asked in a sharp voice, and the little maid only smiled. Abigail, Abigail, what is it? Sarah took hold of the child's shoulders and shook her, but she got no words back. Only the smile ceased, and the eyelids drooped faintly. Are you hungry, Abigail? The little maid shook her head softly. It cannot be that, said Sarah, as if to herself. There is enough in the house, but what is it, Abigail? Look at me. How long is it since you have eaten, Abigail? Yesterday, whispered the little maid dreamily. What did you eat? Some posies and leaves out of the field. What become of all that bread that was baked and the cakes and the meat?
I have forgot. No, you have not. Tell me, Abigail. The black beast came in the night and did eat it all up, and the cow, calf, and horses too. The black beast! I heard him in the night, and in the morning t'was gone. Sarah sprang up. Robbers and murderers! She cried in a fierce voice, but the little maid on the floor did not start. She shut her eyes again and looked up and down the road. Sarah got a bucket quickly and went out in the yard to the cow. Down on her knees in the grass she went and knelt. Then she carried in the bucket, strained the milk with trembling haste, and poured some into Abigail's little pewter porridger. She won't to love it warm. She was wont to love it warm, she whispered with white lips. She bent close to the little maid and raised her on one arm while she put the porridger to her mouth. Drink, Abigail, she said with tender command. Tis warm the way you love it. The little maid tried to sip but shut her mouth and turned her head with a weak loathing and Sarah could not compel her. She laid her back and got a spoon and fed her a little by dint of much pleading to make her open her mouth and swallow. Afterward, she undressed her and put her in bed in the soft front room, but the child was so uneasy without the ring of garments which she had arranged that Sarah was forced to put them around her on the bed. Then she fell asleep directly and stood in her dream watching in the door. Sarah herself stood in the door looking up and down the road. There was the sound of a galloping horse in the distance. It came nearer and nearer. She went down to the road and stood waiting. The horse was reined in close to her. The young man who rode him sprang off the saddle. It is you, Sarah. You are safe home, he cried eagerly, and would have put his arm around her, but she stood aloof sternly. For what else did you take me? My apparition? She said in a hard voice, Sweetheart, now you know that I have, but just come from jail in Boston, where I have lain, face chained for witchcraft? See you my fine apparel with the prison air in it? No, you that called me a witch, said that I did afflict Mary and wearin' the rest? I marvel not that you kept your distance, David Carr. I might perchance have hurt you, and they might have accused you. Since you were in a fellowship with a witch, I marvel not at that. I would have no harm come to you, though far greater than this came to me. But wherefore did you let my little sister Abigail starve? That I cannot suffer, coming from you, David. The young man took her in his arms with a decided motion, and indeed she did not repulse him, but began to weep. Sarah, he said earnestly, I was an obstwitch. I knew not of you and Benjamin being cried out upon until within this hour, when I returned home my mother told me. I knew not you were acquitted, and was on my way to Boston to you when I saw you at the gate. And as for Abigail, I knew not at all. And so t'was with my mother, for she but now wept when she heard the poor little maid had been taken with the rest. But you meant not that, sweetheart. She has not been left to starve. They stole away the food in the night, and the horses, and the cow and the calf. I found the cow straying in the woods, but now on my way home, and drove her in and milked her, but Abigail would take scarce a spoonful of warm milk. She had but little to eat for three days, and has been distracted with fear and being left alone. 
she has ever been but a delicate child, and now I fear she has a fever on her and will die with her mother away. I will go for my mother, sweetheart, said David Carr eagerly. Bring her under cover of night then, said Sarah, else she may be suspected if she came to this witch's tavern, as they call it. Oh, David, think you she will come? I am in a sore strait. I will bring her without fail, sweet, and a flask of wine also, and needments for the little maid, cried David. Only do you keep up good heart and precedence, sweet, and the child would amend soon, and the others be soon equate. Nay, weep not, poor lass, poor lass, thou hast me. Whatever else fail, thee poor solace, though that be, and I will fetch thee mother right speedily. She is ever great sore by the little maid, and knows much about ailments, and I doubt not they will be soon acquit. They say my mother will, answered Sarah tearfully, and Benjamin is acquit now, but had best keep for a season out of the Salem village. My father will not be acquit. He has spoken his mind too boldly before them all. Nay, sweet Sarah, said David Carr mounting, twill all have passed soon, tis but a madness. Go in to the little maid and be of good comfort. Sarah went sobbing into her house, but her face was quite calm when she stood over little Abigail. The child was still asleep, and she could arouse her only for a moment to take a few spoonfuls of milk. Then she turned her head on her pillow with weary obstinance and shut her eyes again. She still held the poor corn cob puppet fast. Sarah washed herself, braided her hair, and changed her prison dress for a clean blue linen one. Then she sat beside Abigail and waited for David Carr and his mother, who came within an hour. Good wife Carr was renowned through Salem Village for her knowledge of medicinal herbs and her nursing. She had a gentle sobriety and a decision of manner which placed her firmly in her neighbor's confidences. Then, seeing how she abode firmly in her own and arguing from that, then she had the two the good fortune to have made no enemies. Consequently, her ability had not occurred for her the suspicion of being a witch. Goodwife Carr brought a goodly store of healing herbs, of bread and cakes and meat. She brewed drinks and bent her face, pale and soberly, faithful, in her close white cap, untiring over Abigail Protector. But the little girl made never rose again. A fever, engaged by starvation and fright and grief, had seized upon her, and she lay in the bed with her little corncob baby a few days longer, and then died. They made a straight white gown for her and dressed her in it. After washing her and soothing her yellow hair, and she lay, looking longer and older than in life, all set about with flowers, pinks and lilacs and roses, from good wife Carr's garden until she was buried, and they had the Ipswet minister come for the funeral, for David Carr cried out in the fury that the minister Paris, who had prosecuted the witchcraft business, was her murderer, and blood would flow from her little body if he stood besides it. And that it was the same with Minister Noyes, and Sarah Protector's pale face had flushed up fiercely in assonant. The morning after the little maid Abigail Protector was buried, Joseph Bailey and his wife Anne came riding down the road from Boston, and they were in brave company and needed to have but little fear of witches, for the great Minister Cotton Mather rode with him, 
His Excellency, the Governor of the Colony, two worshipful magistrates, and two other ministers, all of their way to a witch trial in Salem, and as they neared the Protector House, there was much discourse concerning it, and the intimates therefore of made strange and dreadful accounts, and much dot and much godly dominication, and as they reached the curve in the road, they came suddenly in sight of a young man and a tall fair maid, standing together at the side by some white flowering bushes, and Sarah Protector, even with her little sister Abigail dead, and her parents in the danger of death, was smiling for a second space in David Carr's face, for the love and the hope in tragedy that make God possible, and the selflessness of the love that make life possible, were upon her in spite of herself. But when she saw the calcavade approaching, saw the gleam of rich raiment in it, and heard the tramp and jingling, the smile faded straight away from her face, and she stood behind David in the white elder bushes, and David stood before her, and gazed with a stern and defiant scowl at the gentry as they passed by, and the great cotton pather gazed back at the beautiful white face rising like another flower out of the bushes, and he speculated with himself if it were the face of a witch. But goodwife Anne Bailey thought only of the little maid at the door, and when they came to the protector house, she leaned eagerly from the pillin, and she smiled and kissed her hand. Why do you thus, Anne? her husband asked, looking about her. See not the little maid in the door? she whispered low, for the fear of the goodly company. I trow she looks better than she did. The roses are in the checks, and they have combed her yellow hair. They put a clean white gown on her, and she holds a little doll, too. I see nobody, said Joseph Bailey wonderingly. Nay, but she stands there. I never saw a night shine like her hair and her white gown. The sunlight lies full in the door. See, see her smiling. I trow all her griefs to be well over. The cavalcade passed the protector house, but goodwife Anne Bailey's sweet face was turned backward until it was out of sight towards the little maid in the door. And that was The Little Maid at the Door by Mary Eleanor Wilkins Freeman. Alright everyone, we're finally at our exit 666. Grab your things. Unbuckle that seatbelt and remember, try to be nice to the locals. I really wouldn't want to be reading about you next. Have a good night.